Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to look at the first 10 verses in the chapter. The writer says, for this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In the last chapter, at the last verse in chapter 6, we discovered that Jesus is like a city of refuge in verse 18. He's an anchor in verse 19 of chapter 6. He's the forerunner in verse 20. He's also a high priest in verse 20. Jesus enters be, the presence behind the veil in verse 19. As a matter of fact, if we just quickly reread in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews believes the eternal priesthood of Jesus is superior to the temporal priesthood of Aaron. Now remember, when the writer wrote this book, almost certainly the priests of Aaron and the high priest in Jerusalem, they were serving in the temple. If our calculations are correct, this book is written sometime after 60 AD, but before 70 AD. Conservative scholars place it at about 68 AD. That means when the writer is writing this book and the Hebrews are reading this book, the temple has less than two years. The, the Romans are going to come. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to tear it down. The priests aren't going to be able to go to the temple. They're not going to be able to offer sacrifices. The whole world is going to change. And so what does it mean 
that Christ's priestly ministry is superior. Remember why this book is being written. It's being written to a group of Jewish believers who are wondering whether or not now is a good time to return to Judaism because it's hard, it's difficult being a Christian. And so the writer is going to provide arguments of why Jesus is superior, not only in every way, but here to the priesthood of Aaron. The writer's going to provide a historical argument in verses 1 through 10. A doctrinal argument in verses 11 through 25. Then he's going to provide a practical argument in verses 26 through 38. In chapter 8, the writer is going to argue that Jesus ministers a new covenant. A superior covenant in chapter 8. In a superior sanctuary in chapter 9. Because of a superior sacrifice in chapter 10. I want you to keep that in mind. Because again, for the reader, there's soon not going to be any sacrifices. There's not going to be a sanctuary. There's not going to be priests as they used to understand it. So why, why, why will the writer go to such great lengths contrasting the ministry of Jesus with the Old Testament ministry of Aaron, the writer wants to prove that Jesus is a king who is a priest. Remember, a high priest. Verse 18, a refuge. Verse 19, an anchor. Verse 20, a forerunner. Again, verse 20 of chapter 6, the high priest. The only priest that we will ever need. The argument is going to be, we have a superior savior who can represent us before God. Jesus is our high priest. The way to God has changed forever. And so when people ask the question, how do I get to God? When people ask you the question, well, which religion is the right religion and which religion is the true religion? And how do you know that this is the right religion versus the wrong religion? The writer of Hebrews is trying to make the reader understand that the religious rituals, the types and the shadows that occupied Judaism in the past is completely fulfilled in Christ. I want you to just imagine if you can What it must have been like being an observant Jew living in the first century. There was only one place that a Jew could go in order to offer a sacrifice. And it had to be the prescribed sacrifice. You couldn't go to Shechem. You couldn't go to the Galilee. You couldn't go to Egypt. You couldn't go to Babylon. You couldn't go to Rome. There was only one place where you could go. You had to go to Jerusalem. There was only one sacrifice that you could offer. It was the prescribed sacrifice. There was only one priest that could do that. It was the high priest. And so for the Jewish person who's wondering whether or not they've made a gigantic mistake by abandoning Judaism... The writer of Hebrews wants everyone to understand 
Just how powerful and just how wonderful and just how incredible Jesus really is. And maybe you've never had to deal with that. Maybe you didn't grow up in a religious tradition where when you heard the news about Jesus and you heard that he died on the cross for your sin and that he rose from the dead, you were wondering about your own relationship with the religion in which you grew up in. And so the writer is going to elaborate using this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who only appears twice in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. In Psalm 110, verse 4. But in verse 1, look what it says. The writer says, for this, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I think maybe it would do us good to go back to Genesis chapter 14 and just very quickly read the story. It won't take long. Many of you know what had happened when the kings, it says at the beginning of chapter 14 that there were in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Ketelaramer, there were five kings who battled against four kings. And many of you know the story of how Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and that he was taken captive and he was taken away by a marauding band and Abraham went with his people and took him and and, 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 and killed these people, basically. It was the first sort of Israeli commando recovery. And in verse 13, it says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham that the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the, the brother of Aner, and that they were allies with Abraham. Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who was born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now this is, this is called an anachronism because there was no Dan at this particular point. It's a geographical region which will later be called Dan. But the writer who's writing this knows. He's thinking back in time and space and in history. And then he, he basically says he divided the forces. He attacked them by night, pursued the servants um, as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, also brought back his brother. It's really his nephew. It just means close relative and his goods and as well as the women and the, children, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the, valley, the king's valley, after his return from the de- defeat of Ketelaramer and the kings who were with him. And then our story, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tithe of all. 
So who is this guy? Who is this Melchizedek? And again, the writer is going to take this story in order to prove to the Jewish people the superiority of Jesus and his right to be both priest and king. He says, for this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which will later be called Jerusalem. And I want you to think about this because in the Bible, Jerusalem is often a type and a picture of the future Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews chapter 11, if you just turn just a couple of quick pages to chapter 11, verse 10, it says, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The the city that Abraham was going to be waiting for was the heavenly city that would come out of the sky. It would be the eternal state. And since in the Bible, Jerusalem sometimes represents the future Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, he's using this particular person as a type and a picture also of Jesus. He is a priest of the most high God. This mystery man is both a spiritual leader and a political leader of his people. Now remember, there are no Jews. This is Abraham. He's being met by Melchizedek. Isaac hasn't been born. Jacob hasn't been born. There's been no promises made as far as that goes, as far as the unfolding of the people and the giving of the law and the birth of Jacob, who's going to give birth to Levi, who's going to serve as the progenitor of the Aaronic priesthood. This person is a priest of the Most High God. And so the right Jewish question should be, who made this guy a priest? Who gets to be a priest? Can just anybody be a priest? And apparently the answer is, well, no. In order to be a a priest, you have to be anointed and appointed by God. But the writer bears testimony that this particular person is anointed and appointed by God apart from Abraham, apart from Isaac, apart from Jacob. He's a spiritual leader. He's a political leader. And in an ideal society, there's no separation between the spiritual and the secular or the sacred and the secular. In a broken world, in a fallen world where sinful people live, it's necessary to separate the church and the state because most of our political leaders don't honor God. They don't care about God. They don't honor the Bible. In a very real sense, it's a good thing that we have separation of church and state in our culture and society. And that we have freedom. But hold on to your hats because that freedom may not always be here. William MacDonald writes, Only when Christ reigns in righteousness will it be possible to unite the two, unquote, that is, the sacred and the secular, but this Melchizedek, this priest who is a king, is appointed by God. He's sent by God. All of this is going to be very, very important as the story unfolds. What exactly did Melchizedek do when he, look at the text, when he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings? 
According to Genesis, which he just read, remember what we read, Melchizedek brought bread and wine. Bread provides strength. Wine provides joy. Melchizedek refreshed Abraham. I want you to think about this in its context again. Abram has just had a tremendous victory. And because he's had a tremendous victory, he's overcome his enemies. He is thrilled that God, by his Holy Spirit, has sent his priest, who is a king, to refresh him after the victory. He's being refreshed. This may be hard for each and every one of you who may not be familiar with the geography of the Holy Land. How far Abram has to go from near the Dead Sea all the way to the northern part as he goes all the way into what's now modern Syria in order to recover his, 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 his kindred. Now he's got about 300 guys, but he's fighting an impossible battle against an, a, a much greater foe. And God in his grace and his mercy gives him the victory. But he's coming home. He's coming home with everything that was taken away from him. William Barclay writes, quote, In the old Genesis story, Melchizedek is a strange and almost eerie figure. He arrives out of the blue. There's nothing about his life, his birth, his death, or his descent. He simply arrives. He gives Abraham bread and wine, which to us, reading the passage in the light of what we know, sounds sacramental. He blesses Abraham and then he vanishes from the stage of history with the same unexplained suddenness as he arrived upon it. There is little wonder that in the mystery of this story, the writer to the Hebrews found a type, a forecast, a symbol of Christ, unquote. So it would appear that Abraham, now full of joy, That God would send his priest to refresh him. Celebrating his victory over his enemy. Gives this king who is a priest. Gifts. Tithes if you will. And all of this becomes a type and a picture of our savior. Our high priest. Jesus brings us his own refreshment. Jesus brings us His word, Jesus brings us joy. Remember in that picture, the types of the bread and the wine. For those of you who have been here, when we have uh, the Lord's Supper, remember we use bread and juice to, to represent what Jesus has done, showing his death and his resurrection. It becomes a type and a picture of the joy that we experience. And so... We are blessed by Jesus. When Jesus was preparing to ascend into heaven after rising from the dead, in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, he basically, before he's getting ready to to leave the planet earth, he leads his, his disciples as far as Bethany. He lifts up his hands and he blesses them. And again, in the gospel of Luke, 
we never read that he ever put his hands down. The picture then is a picture of a high priest blessing us on a continual basis. We're blessed by Jesus. When Jesus, like I said, was preparing to go to heaven, he blesses us. He ascends into heaven. And again, according to the book of Acts, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And now we begin to understand as the story unfolds the meaning of his marvelous name. And so it says in verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convince you, the reader, that this mysterious man, Melchizedek, shares something with our Savior, Melchizedek is a priest and a king. Jesus is a priest and a king. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and king of peace. And so the writer is drawing us to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus too is a king of righteousness. He too is a king of peace. The king of Salem receives a tenth part of all, a gift, a tithe. He receives that which Abraham took in the spoil, commemorating his victory. And in the Old Testament, there was a deep meaning usually associated with a person's name. A person's name, in part, communicated something about that person. So this king's name means king of righteousness, king of peace. And just like the rest of the New Testament, righteousness precedes peace. Again, why is even that little tidbit of information important? There can be no peace without righteousness. And because Jesus is righteous, you can experience peace. And so again, he becomes this picture of a king who is righteous who imparts peace and of course we see both righteousness and peace perfected in the name of Jesus in Psalm 85 verse 10 it says mercy and truth met together righteousness and peace it says in Psalm 85 10 kissed when does righteousness And peace press their lips together. It's in the cross of Christ. Where we now get to experience righteousness and peace. Because we have a savior. And our high priest waits for gifts. And offerings. And there's four that we can give. According to the New Testament. Do you remember in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. That we're not to be conformed to this world, but rather transformed by the renewing of our, of our mind. We can give our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we 
tithe, if you will. Usually when you think about tithing, you usually think about money, but that's not what the Bible completely focuses on. The Bible says, give your body, give your service in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Even later in Hebrews chapter 13, I think, in verse, oh, where is it? In verse 16, look what it says. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God is pleased when you do what's good. So we give our body, we give our service, we give our money in Philippians chapter 4 verse 18. But not only do we give our bodies and our service and our money, we give our praise. In Hebrews chapter 13 Again, in verse 15, it says, Therefore, by him, that's Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We give our bodies, we give our service, we give our money, we give our praise. Melchizedek is a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus. But he's also a type and a picture of a king who is a priest, who deserves the generosity that comes. Think about it for just a moment. Abram has gone. His family and friends have been taken advantage of. God gives him a great victory. And he's refreshed by the king who is the priest. And by the way, the priest in the Old Testament could never occupy the office of the king. And the king in the Old Testament could never occupy the office of a priest. In in the Levitical sense, or in the Hebrew sense, or in the Jewish-Israeli sense. And the priest never sat on a throne. The priest didn't sit at all. If you could go through the temple furniture in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, or you could go to the temple. There was never a place for the priest to sit down because the priest never sat down. And so it is with Jesus. The Bible says he is seated at the right hand of the Father as king, but he stands as the righteous priest. And so the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, king of peace. Both names apply to Jesus. And then we see the marvel of an endless ministry. And now we go in earnest. Look what it says. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out some other things about Melchizedek that you should find interesting. The writer sees in Melchizedek, like I said, a type, a picture of Christ. The writer repeats and reinforces the claim of verse 15. If you go in chapter 7, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. He is a type, a picture. This isn't Jesus in a pre-incarnate manifestation. 
as some people like to think. So what is this? How is this king like Jesus? Well, remember, they share names that are similar. A king of peace, a king of righteousness. How else are they similar? Well, they resemble each other in their origin. In what sense? Without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the Son of God. I want you to think for just a moment. Remember, Jesus is one person with two natures. He is the eternal, self-existent God who has always existed. This self-existent, eternal God acquires a second nature, a human nature. He is born. He has a mother and a genealogy. So what in the world is he talking about? Does this literally mean that Melchizedek was never born or literally that Melchizedek never died? And I don't think that that's the right answer. I think it means that there's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. There is no record of his genealogy or his pedigree. Why is all of that important? Because the writer of Hebrews in its context, is talking about the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. Remember, to the Jewish person who would say, Jesus can't be a priest. He's born in the wrong family. He doesn't have the right credentials. The writer of Hebrews is saying, his credentials are far superior to the Aaronic priests. In what way? God appointed the sons of Aaron according to the law to be the priests in the temple. Who appointed Melchizedek? God himself appointed Melchizedek. Who appointed Christ priest? God himself appointed Christ priest. The superior priesthood of Jesus is the theme Again, remember, in order to be a priest in Israel, you have to have the right genealogy. You have to be from the right tribal group. You had to be born into the tribe of Levi. And the qualification began at your birth and ceased at your death. That wasn't true about the priesthood of Melchizedek. Why? He didn't inherit the priesthood. Why? Because God simply picked him out and designated him as a priest. Why doesn't the Bible mention his birth? Why doesn't the Bible mention his death? Why? The writer of Hebrews says the Bible doesn't speak to these issues because the Bible wants to present him as a type and a picture of another priest and another king who will come. The Bible is teaching in this book of Hebrews and through the book of Genesis that God has orchestrated all of this for his glory knowing that every single moment, every single chapter, every single verse is designed in such a way to communicate the truth about Jesus. And so the expression made like means 
to be like. And so when it says without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life in verse 3, but made like in verse 3, made like the son of God, meaning timeless in his priesthood. I don't think it means that Melchizedek is the son of God. Because that would ruin the typology and it would ruin the historicity. And I really believe that there was a real king who was the king of Jebus or the king of Salem. That he was appointed by God and that he literally went out and that he literally refreshed Abraham when he returned from his victory. And so here you have it. Because Abram pays tithes to the king of Salem, and because Melchizedek is a greater priest, greater than earthly priests, because he has a special right to the priesthood, because he's been anointed and appointed by God, the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince the Hebrew person that the same is true of Jesus. And you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything that I have to deal with? Well, if you grew up in a religious tradition like I grew up in, in Roman Catholicism, and you learn in Roman Catholicism that the only way that you can actually go to God is you have to go through the priest. You have to confess your sin to the priest. You have to go to the mass, and the priest has to offer the sacrifice of the mass. And that in order to be accepted, in order to have a right relationship with God, you have to go through the ritual and the religion, and you have to embrace these sacraments because apart from that, that this is God's ordained way in order to get to God. And that might not have been the religious tradition that you grew up in, but you might have grown up in a religious tradition where you were taught that there were certain things that you have to do in order to get to God. And the writer of Hebrews is telling not only the Hebrew Christians, but Christians in every single generation, you have a superior priest. You have everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness in Jesus. So, What else? Well, in the writer, is the writer of Hebrews using this biblical character in order to make a point about Christ? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, Melchizedek's presence in the narrative isn't an accident. What the Bible says about him, what the Bible says about his role in in Genesis, it's a prophetic picture of a future king. And so in that sense, Melchizedek is like Christ, a king who is a priest, a king who is a priest in Jerusalem, a king who is a priest who did not inherit his priesthood from his ancestors, nor does he pass it down to his children. Again, in the Levitical system, the priests had to prove their paternity. They had to prove their genealogy by the family records. By the way, all of those family records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's my understanding that there are a group of people called Kohanim who have preserved their genealogies for the last 2,000 years and claim to be direct descendants of Levi. 
There are other people who claim to be direct descendants from other tribal groups. But whether or not those claims are true, I have no idea. But the Bible says that in the book of Revelation, there are 144,000 Jews from 12 separate tribes who are going to be raised up in the end days. And people go, well, how are they going to, are they going to know that they're from all of these tribes? My answer, I have zero idea. Other than maybe God has some sort of DNA genetic signature planted in their DNA and he knows the truth about who belongs to who. So, in the Levitical system, the priest proves paternity, genealogy. Every single high priest who descends from Aaron dies. Both Jesus and Melchizedek hold their offices permanently. Look what it says in verse 8. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Verse 16. Who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Verses 24 and 25. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession. We usually apply that to unbelievers. But the context again is you and me. He saves you and me from the guttermost, excuse me, uttermost. He drags us out of the pit. And why is he able to do it? Because he has a permanent ministry. And in verse 4, look what it says. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Remember, for those of you who've been studying along with me in the book of Hebrews, how at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, we were asked to consider Jesus. The the writer says, I want you to consider with me Jesus. And now he invites us to consider Melchizedek and his greatness. He's already told us he shares a mysterious origin. He shares an incredible name. And now he says, Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils to him. Like I said, this gift came on the heels of the great victory after the enemies were defeated. And throughout the chapter, we learn about the characteristics of the ministry of Jesus and in a very real way, how they are related to one another as far as Melchizedek. Both are royal in verse 1. Both are superior to Aaron in verses 4 through 10. And why is it superior? Because Abraham is the ancestor to to Levi. In other words, Abraham is the great grand. Abraham is the father. Isaac is the son then Jacob, and then Levi. And so what he's basically saying is, it's the superiority, if you will, of progenitorship. And you may not even know what that means, but in the ancient cultures, it's the father is always greater than the son. That isn't always true in real life. In real life, sometimes it skips a generation. I know. I was just wondering if any of you were awake. Apparently you're not. 
But here we go. So both are superior to Aaron. Abraham is the ancestor to Levi. We later learned that both the ministry of Melchizedek and Jesus are independent of the law. That's what we're going to find out later in the chapter in verses 11 and 12. Abraham, Aaron, receives his priesthood because the law entitles him to it. Jesus receives his priesthood independent of the law, independent of the tribe. Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. The ministry of Jesus is everlasting in verses 16 and 17. The ministry of Jesus is guaranteed in verse 20 and 22. Jesus' ministry continues forever in verse 23. It's permanent in verse 24. It's holy in verse 26. It's sufficient in verses 18 and 19, in verses 25 and 27. It's flawless in verse 28. Let's Let's string all of these words together. Everlasting, guaranteed, continuous, permanent, sufficient, flawless. Is it starting to sound superior to you? I hope so. In verse 5, and indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham according to the law this is what the writer is saying according to the law the sons of Levi were empowered or authorized to receive the tithes why did the Jewish people tithe to the Levites, because the law commanded it. Let me put it to you differently. Why do any of you ever pay your income taxes? The law commands it. Whenever there's a law, the law can compel you to do it. Can the law, which tells you to pay your taxes, if for whatever reason you decide not to pay your taxes, can't? Can the law say, I'm going to prosecute you and I'm going to penalize you and maybe even imprison you? By the way, have any of you, maybe not you yourself, but have you ever heard of a person who went to court and even went to jail because they didn't pay their taxes? Not you, just someone you heard about. No hands? Some hands? Let me tell you, are there people who go to jail because they don't pay their taxes? The answer is yes. So, here is the point that the writer is making. People compelled the Hebrew people to give their tithes to the priests. Was Abraham compelled to give his tithes to Melchizedek? No. Why did he pay tithes to Melchizedek? Because he was refreshed by Melchizedek. I want you to, to, again, to think about this. Abraham is thrilled that the priest of God leaves his kingly city and refreshes him. And because of that act, he gives gifts to him. Do you give your body your service, your money to the Lord Jesus because you have to. 
No, because you want to. Both trace their lineage through Abraham, Levi, and the sons of Levi. Verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. The passage is suggesting that Melchizedek, he doesn't share the same origin as Levi and his brothers. Melchizedek couldn't have been descended from Abraham, yet he receives tithes from Abraham. Why in the world was the father of faith, Abraham, paying tithes to someone disconnected from the nation through whom the Messiah would come? I want you to think about this for just a moment. I want you to think about the observant Jew having read Genesis, having read the story of Abraham, having read the story of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, to a person not connected to them racially, and yet Melchizedek has both the authority and the ability to bless Abraham. How is that even possible? Abraham was the possessor of the promises. But in Genesis 14, 19 and 20, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Avram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, verse 20. Blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And again, he gave him a tithe. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. In that culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, when one blesses another man, it's understood that the superior blesses the inferior. There's other cultures like that. Imagine if you go to Japan. If you go to Japan, if you're bowed to, you bow. If you bow to someone, then they bow back. Who bows first? It's exactly the opposite. Here, the blessing comes from the person who's the superior. Now, again, I need you to understand what I mean by superior. This is not a moral superiority. This is not a personal inferiority. It's an inferiority of position. This might be hard for you to understand. Imagine the reader's reaction. The author of Hebrews is telling Hebrew people, Jews, who revere Father Abraham, that Abraham is acknowledging that a non-Jewish king, a non-Jewish priest, is his superior. Why is the writer of Hebrews paying so much attention to this issue? Because if Abraham could acknowledge the superiority of Melchizedek, who is not a Jew and who is not a progenitor of the promises, why is it so difficult for you to comprehend that Jesus is superior in every way? That's the idea. So he makes the point when he says, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Here, mortal men receive tithes. The Levitical priests 
received offerings from their brethren? Does Jesus receive anything in heaven? The right answer is he receives everything. He receives everything. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When, the, when, when Melchizedek said, blessed are you. When he said, blessed be Abraham of God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. The writer of Hebrews has already made the claim that Jesus is the possessor of heaven. Jesus is the possessor of the earth. In the case of Melchizedek, he ne- no mention is made of his death. And so the writer is basically making this point. The priests of Aaron are subject to death. In, era, in the world of the Levitical priesthood, one generation is born, another generation serves, another generation dies, another generation is born. They serve and they die. In the case of Melchizedek, no mention is made of his death. Therefore, he can represent a priesthood that is unique and perpetual. And so he's going to make the argument that Aaron's priesthood is destined to disappear. And Jesus' priesthood is destined to never go away. Verse 9, even Levi who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. So the writer makes the leap. Even Levi who receives tithes from his brethren pays tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. The idea of receiving tithe. Paying tithe through Abraham acknowledges the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Listen to the logic, the compelling logic of the writer. The writer is basically saying, Abraham believes that there's a superior priesthood. God believes that there's a superior priesthood. Levi believes that there's a superior priesthood. So you go back to chapter 6, verse 20. For us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, eternal, perpetual, superior. Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In what way? Again, In that culture and society, Abraham serves as a kind of representative of all of his offspring. This is a biblical notion. The Bible says that in in Adam, all die. In what sense? Adam is the physical representation of every single human being who will follow him. And the idea being that Adam, in Adam, we have both blessing and cursing. And so the writer of Romans and Paul, he's going to say, if sin came by one man, Adam, then blessing can come by one man, Jesus. He's making the same argument here. Abraham serves as a kind of representative of all of his offspring. Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek. 
So is Isaac. So is Jacob. So is Levi. So is all of Abraham's posterity. The priesthood of Haran then comes from Abraham. Therefore, it's subordinate to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So the writer is arguing that Melchizedek is superior to Aaron and his offspring in the payment of the tithes. Aaron pays tithes to Melchizedek while he is yet unborn. When Melchizedek blesses Abraham, he's also receiving a blessing of Abraham's future children, including the tribe of Levi, since the lesser is blessed by the better in verse 7. In the old order, the Levitical system, in the Jewish temple, the priest receives tithes from their brothers. In Genesis 14, predating the tabernacle, predating the temple, the priests in Abraham's loins give tithes to Melchizedek. And so this is all meant to illustrate the superiority of Aaron's priesthood in relation to the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. What does this writer want from you? He wants you to be convinced of the poverty, inadequacy, and inability of anyone to represent you to God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the point that's being made. No earthly priest is perfect. Jesus is perfect. No earthly priest is immortal. Jesus is eternal. And since Jesus is both immortal and eternal, he's the only perfect and acceptable priest who can represent human beings to God. How can this be proven, though? How can you prove this? How can human beings be convinced that the priests of earthly religion, including the Jewish Levitical priesthood, are inadequate, unacceptable? That's why he's giving this illustration. This is why he's talking about the encounter. He wants the reader to accept the fact that Jesus is superior in every way. So what's our passage saying? Number one, we no longer have to approach God on the basis of earthly priests. Number two, we can be convinced that Jesus is the greatest priest. He is greater than any priest and every priest and all priests. We know that earthly priests are inadequate to represent us. We know that Jesus is perfect, eternal, and adequate. We know that the inadequate and imperfect priesthood is gone forever. And so this writer of Hebrews is going to prepare the reader, even from a prophetic sense in the first century, pretty soon, your priests are going to be gone. Pretty soon, your temple's going to be gone. Pretty soon, their sacrifices are all going to be gone. And pretty soon, you're going to begin to understand fully, completely, totally, unequivocally that Jesus is everything. Next week, the rest of the chapter.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus, Lord, that we can bow our head, that we don't have to wait a year. We don't have to walk into a temple. That, Lord, we can, with an open heart, come to you. Lord, that there's no church or human being who at best can only represent us in an imperfect way, in an incomplete way. But Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for Jesus who loves us, who gave his life for us, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, Lord, there with you, interceding, speaking, fully aware of who we are and what we're doing, fully aware of our spiritual need, our physical need, our mental and emotional need. And so, Lord, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would never, ever, ever settle for some sort of ritual or religious substitute when we have a wonderful Savior who is our advocate always. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.